too many of our circles want to emphasize one over the other. There are those dear brothers who are all justification, and they almost don't want to talk about sanctification. And there are many dear brothers who it's sanctification, and they're go, they go to all your duties, and you sort of forget about your justification. Now, we can theologically walk and chew gum at the same time. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 74, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thanks for tuning in. Branching out from the theme of the lure of rationalism, Dr. Alan Strange now explores theological false dichotomies, addressing the particular doctrines of salvation and justification, and in doing so, highlights the importance of not privileging certain aspects of those doctrines to the exclusion of others. Here's Dr. Strange. Well, Jared, it's good to be back with you and to all of our listeners. Last time, we were talking about the lure of rationalism, which I trust since then you have been endeavoring to resist. Um, But one of the things – one of the the realities of that lure of rationalism is a number of errors we talked about that stem from it, which all amount to a refusal to take the whole revelation of God as our standard. That's what we want to do. We don't want to take away the mystery of the faith. We want to make sure that we assert and we believe all that the Scriptures teach and that the tensions that are involved in the creaturely reception of divine truth, we don't try to smooth all of those out. And we could see that in a number of ways throughout our theology, as we were talking about last time, even if we're talking about an underrealized eschatology like you have in, say, dispensationalism, in which there's not the recognition that the kingdom has come, the kingdom is seen as purely future, or an overly realized eschatology. So this lure of rationalism goes across the board, and I, I want to continue to think about that sort of thing, and we could speak about this too under the rubric of, of theological false dichotomies this kind of rationalistic approach, uh, not taking Scripture, if you will, at its word and trying to affirm what Scripture affirms and to not smooth its edges out uh, overly so, uh, can create, uh, when when we try to smooth those things out, we create a false dichotomy, we create a number of false dichotomies. And and we were talking as well uh, last time about uh, understanding that salvation is all of grace and how there's an eternal aspect, how there's a historic aspect, how there's an existential aspect uh, to our salvation, though some of us in our Reformed churches may, uh, expend, may emphasize one at the expense of others. We need an approach that rightly emphasizes all three. And I would say similarly, uh, with respect to the existential application of salvation, We want to make sure that we don't privilege certain aspects to the exclusion of others. And what I have in mind just here is we rightly, as Presbyterian and Reformed, particularly we think in terms of our confessional churches, 
uh, Presbyterians especially, OPC, PCA, uh, Reformed, uh, URC, CRC, and others. Uh, I don't mean to exclude some, but I just name a couple quickly there. Um, We rightly emphasize justification. Uh, John Calvin uh, thought justification was very important, as did Martin Luther. I think we all know how important justification was for Luther. Luther strove for some time, for some years, to attain, as he put it, what he believed was the righteousness that God required. He did everything he could think of to obtain this righteousness that God required. And he came, he says rather pungently, to actually despise God at one point because he felt he could not attain this righteousness that God required. And finally, Luther came to realize, and this was his, this was his great discovery, um, and he said, in fact, when he discovered this, the gates of paradise opened and he did enter in. When he discovered that the righteousness that God requires, he gives freely as a gift received by faith alone. And that really brought about the Reformation, particularly there in Wittenberg, the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door, and all that followed uh, after that, his wonderful discovery of justification by faith alone, which is to say we're justified not because of any faith that we have, not because of any works that we might do, but we're justified. The ground of our justification is entirely and exclusively the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming and living and dying as our substitute, not just dying as our substitute, but living as our substitute. And what we call one shorthanded way, we refer to his living as our substitute, keeping the whole law on our behalf. We refer to that typically as his active obedience. I've talked to you about that before in a book I've written on the subject, which I'm holding in my hands here. Um, So uh, the imputation of the active obedience of Christ in the Westminster Standards. And that's a very, very important understanding. It's a very important uh, doctrine because it means that Jesus lived for us. The life that Adam was to live as an obedient child of God and didn't live, Jesus did live. You could say this, Jesus came and he kept the covenant of works for us. Adam failed in the covenant of works. He was in a covenant of works. He didn't keep it. Christ came as the last Adam and kept it. And then he went to the cross and he paid for our having violated it. Sometimes people say, well, if he paid for our sins on the cross, why does Christ need to actively keep the law for us? Well, I think I think a bit of thought shows this to us. For example, if a child is told to clean their room and we're going to go to this baseball game at 7 o'clock and your room needs to be cleaned by 6 and you come in there and the room is just a mess, well, the parent might say, you're not going to go to the baseball game tonight and now clean up your room. So your penalty is you don't go to the game, but the room still has to be clean. The law has to be kept, and as Athanasius says in his work on the Incarnation, it's unthinkable that God would give this law, this beautiful thing, which is a revelation of his character, and that it would so quickly be abrogated by Adam's disobedience without ever having been kept. And that's a, he's anticipating 
Christ, as Irenaeus speaks of in terms of the doctrine of recapitulation, as the last Adam coming and not only paying the penalty due for violating the law, but keeping the law. And God has, doesn't he, more delight in obedience than sacrifice? So, of course, the law is going to be obeyed. The law is going to be upheld. But in case you haven't been paying a lot of attention to your own life lately, it isn't you and it isn't me who's the perfect law keeper. (laughs) If we're paying attention, we have plenty that we fail to do. We know that. And so Jesus came and he did that. And all of that becomes ours. His life, his death becomes ours by imputation. It's accounted to us. Our sins are accounted to him. His righteousness is accounted or imputed to us. So we have that perfect righteousness. And it's received by faith alone, which means it's simply our trusting in him. Yes, if we have faith, we will produce works. Yes, we will walk in his way. But we've got to understand separately and exclusively in a sense that our the basis of our acceptance and the basis on which we're justified, which is to say we're declared righteous in the sight of God, our sins are forgiven, and we're declared to be righteous in his holy sight, that is entirely and only and exclusively on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us entirely. And so we here affirm that. We have a wonderful document Uh, that we as a faculty adopted some years ago regarding errors that others were teaching, confusing justification, sanctification, and so forth. And we make these things very clear. That's still available for any of our listeners who would like such. I I guess it's it's a – is it in PDF on the – it's a a digitized – yeah, right. Um, So – This forensic work is really crucial, right, Um, particularly as we subjectively appropriate, we might say, the objective work of Christ. And we we believe as Reformed, as Presbyterian, that with Calvin, as he agreed with Luther, I mentioned Luther. Now, what did Calvin say about this justification? Did he say, eh, it's not as important as Luther thought? No, he said, it's the main hinge upon which true religion turns. So Calvin thought that it was extraordinarily important as well. But we need to say this, and we need to be clear, that as crucial as the forensic is, the transformative is also very important. And this was part of the discovery, you might say, particularly of some in the, in, the, in the later generations, the Puritans, the Natural Reformatsi, even the Pietists understood that you don't want to have just an outward salvation that we appropriate by faith. In other words, that we understand and we affirm only justification. It's just justification. And it doesn't matter how you live, and God doesn't change us. He doesn't transform us. He doesn't care about how we live. Now, let me be very very clear to say, how we live, if we rightly understand it, is not so that God will accept us. I don't live in obedience to Christ so that God will accept me. I live in obedience to Christ because God has accepted me. And if what Jesus has done for me isn't enough— to get God to accept me. I'm going to do what? I, I'm going to do 
what to get him to accept me? I hope you understand that, everybody. This is a, as as the old Baptist preacher used to say when I was a kid, this is shouting ground. This is good stuff to understand that if what Jesus did is not enough to gain you acceptance with, with God, how are you possibly going to get such acceptance on the basis of anything you are or have or do? No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. However, when we know Jesus, we want to serve Jesus. We want to live for Jesus. Uh, we we do this very imperfectly. There are times when we don't. We can draw away from this. We can draw away from the means of grace. We can stop going to church. We can be unmindful of God in our prayers. We can we can live like a practical pagan for some amount of time. I, you know, I don't. It's not what we should do. It's not there's not joy in it. It's not what we ought to do. We ought to come back. We ought to come back and walk with Him. But the notion. It's sort of this way when I talk about the under-realized and over-realized eschatology. I mentioned our dispensationalist friends, and I was I was brought up hearing this my whole life down south. Well, you know Jesus as your Savior. Now you need to make him your Lord. You know him as Savior, but make him your Lord. And the, the fundamental confusion there was that he isn't the Savior of everybody and the Lord of those who make him Lord, he's the Lord of all, and he's the Savior of those who recognize him as such. You never have him as your Savior without bowing to him as your Lord. And so this notion that you can have this justification, you can be truly his and be what they called, what we called a carnal Christian, which meant you can live like you want to. You really ought to live for Jesus, but that's an added plus. That's something that the better Christians decide to do. That's something that people who are more with it spiritually decide to do. No, we understand all true Christians desire, have this desire to live for the Lord because they have a work in them that is not just the forensic, the outward judicial work of Christ and the application of that to us by the Holy Spirit received by faith. But we also have an inner transformative work that begins in regeneration and that continues in sanctification. But too many of our circles want to emphasize one over the other. There are those dear brothers who are all justification, and they almost don't want to talk about sanctification. And there are many dear brothers who it's sanctification, and they go they go to all your duties, and you sort of forget about your justification. Now, we can theologically walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have a proper, distinct, hearty, delightful view of justification, but we can also have a serious, wonderful view of sanctification, of what it means to truly live for the Lord. And we don't want to so emphasize the transformative that that we do so at the expense of the forensic, but we don't want to make the opposite error, to downplay the transformative, uh, because that that yields a kind of formalism. We just have this outward trust. We, you know, God outwardly did this for us, and we trust in that. And there are churches that that emphasize this. That it leads to kind of to a formalism. You don't want a formalism, which is a rationalism on the one hand, nor do you want such an emphasis on the inner or the subjective that you go into kind of a mysticism. So this is a this is one of the great false dichotomies between you might say between. Uh, formalism, rationalism, and mysticism. Think of it this way. You could call formalism uh, or rationalism as the word without the spirit, or mysticism 
as the spirit without the word. Calvinists are supposed to believe in word and spirit. It's both together. And um, the Westminster Assembly, I think, certainly did this uh, in the way they handle the antinomian crisis. It's fascinating when you come into the 1640s and see what's going on in England. What's going on in England is this, that the Puritans have had such sway now for a few decades, um, and they've come to power in government in the 1640s. Uh, The parliament is Puritan, basically, and it's fighting the king. Um, That there has been such a strong preaching of justification by faith alone. There's been such a strong preaching of the free grace of God that people hearing this have become antinomian. Let me just say this. Uh, A friend once said, if you don't preach in a way that some people are tempted to, or at least there's a lure to antinomianism, maybe you're not preaching grace free enough. And I, I think that's true. I think we should preach grace so freely that it sounds almost like we're antinomians. On the other hand, we should preach grace so transformatively that that people think we're doing the opposite thing. Uh, we need to preach what the Bible says. This is the escape of rationalism. I keep talking about that. But what happened at Westminster is you had a lot of people who were who were antinomians. And um, this is this is their was their takeaway from if the grace of God is so free as it is, uh, then we can live as we please, or it doesn't matter how we live. We're free in every respect. And what the Westminster Assembly wanted to say is believers are free from the law of God as a covenant of works. They don't have the law of God as a covenant of works. Rather, they have the law of God, of course, in its first usage, which shows you your sin, but they have it in its third usage. The second usage is the civil use. But the third use is that expression of gratitude for the Christian life. Uh, what occurs particularly in the way it's treated so beautifully in the Heidelberg Catechism in the third part. We all know that the Heidelberg, you can speak of it several different ways, uh, but it's in three parts. And you could say the first part is sin, the second part is salvation, and the third part is service or guilt, grace, and gratitude, another, uh, another way of looking at it. But service or gratitude is where the law occurs. And that's the third use for the Christian, which means this is the way we seek to live our lives as an expression of, of thanks and gratefulness to the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Again, not to secure our justification, that's secure, but as an expression of our belief in our faith. And what happens at Westminster is there's so many antinomians there that you might think that they would be lured to the rationalism of answering in the opposite direction. But when you actually read in the Westminster Standards, in the Confession of Faith, and in both of the catechisms, what they say, for example, in the larger catechism, question 70 is what is justification? Uh, And you have several more questions on this. Then you have a beautiful question, question 77, which is asking how do you distinguish between justification and sanctification? And that's a very powerful question. I would urge our readers to look at that. I'm not going to read it to you right now, but Westminster Larger Catechism 77, how do you distinguish? But the point is 
though they were facing a lot of people whose takeaway from the free grace of God was live as you please, (laughs) they did not so define the free grace of God as to take that away. They kept that there. They have a very strong doctrine of justification. They don't back off of it a whit. And this has been a problem in our churches, even in modern times, in some of our Reformed churches. Part of the the Federal Vision Movement and movements that preceded the Federal Vision Movement heard and saw the antinomianism in our general society, the sort of the lawlessness, you might say, in a lot of general evangelical culture, or even the make Jesus your your you know him as Savior, make him your Lord. And so they said, well, we're going to make sure that nobody's an antinomian, and they become a neonomian. They didn't do that at Westminster. They're very clear on justification. They, everything I've said in this podcast, they affirm it's entirely Christ. It's all of grace. But because it's all of grace, part of grace is transformative. And this transformative reality makes us want to live for Christ. And we do, by his grace, seek to live for him. So we want to resist these false dichotomies as we continue to not give way to the lure of temptation and rationalism. Well, a trilogy of episodes with Dr. Strange wouldn't be complete if he didn't address what he will next time, namely the spirituality of the church. What does it mean for the church to be a spiritual institution? And how was that doctrine abused in the South with respect to American slavery? I hope you'll join Dr. Strange as he addresses this next time. For more episodes, you can find us on our website and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.